There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Down the block, Andrew Johnson. Inside for Elba. Elba will score. Elba will score. Today on the Rugby League Guru podcast, we're lucky enough to be joined by former leading point scorer in Rugby League, Daryl Halligan. Uh, Daryl managed to score an impressive 2,034 points during his career in the NRL. Uh, when he retired in 2000, at that time, it was the most points ever scored by an individual in Rugby League. Uh, pretty impressive considering that Daryl didn't actually make his NRL debut until he was 23 years old. So to be able to hold the record with a probably a five-year delayed career compared to the other guys on the list now is pretty impressive. Um, he sits sixth overall now. The guys in front of him, Cameron Smith, El Masri, Thurston, Joey, Jason Taylor. Um, Jared Croker's just behind him. He's only 20 points behind, so he'll overtake him by the end of this year, without a doubt, probably in the first five or six weeks. Uh, but all these guys have done it in a heap more games than what Darrell Halligan did. He was a revolutionary goal kicker. He was the first man to use the plastic tea in rugby league. Everyone was using sand or um, sawdust as he was at North Sydney Oval. So for him to step out of that comfort zone and like in, in his own little way, he changed the game of rugby league. He's such a special individual. He just, he featured in so many huge moments in rugby league and will always be remembered as one of the greatest point scorers ever. I can't ever see him falling out of that list an incredibly impressive effort. Uh, he's got a great story to tell. He won a premiership with Canterbury in 1995 and um, played in the grand final in 94. An unbelievable story to tell. I hope you enjoy it. Let's kick it off. Driving into a vacant corner. Halligan, welcome on, mate. How are we? Yeah, fantastic. Great stuff. This isolation, isn't it? Makes oh. you find yourself again. I might actually start playing. 
<laughs> We'd love to have going, you back, I'll go, mate. I'll go and do some goal-kicking practice <laughs> just for a change. Mate, speaking of your goal-kicking, you know, it's what you're world-famous for. Uh, tell me, as a young bloke, were you pretty handy with the tee from the start or what? My older brother um, at school was two years ahead of me and he did most of the kicking in the teams um, that he played in and subsequently I played in quite a few of those teams. So I didn't really get a shot. And when you're practising and there's only one football in the family, um, I didn't really get my fair share of opportunities. I, I felt I was halfway down the post kicking them back for him half the time. And it wasn't really so in New Zealand. We didn't have the same schooling system, but uh, maybe year 12 to 13, once he had left school, that I actually um, really got stuck into it. I, I, I sort of really enjoyed practising, and I was at a boarding school, a big school in Hamilton um, in the Waikato, and um, spent many, many hours in the afternoons with the, with the guys kicking goals. But it, it was it was basically after my older brother um, departed for university that I actually got the opportunity to kick some goals. Was he a better kicker than you um, as a young bloke? According to him. <laughs> he'll still tell you that, um, that to this day. He was a pretty handy footballer. He um, played for New Zealand universities. Of course, this was rugby union um, in New Zealand. Um, and then he went off uh, after union and played some, uh, up to New Zealand University and played some football in, uh, in France and basically spent the next 20 years in France. Uh, finished up playing football down the south um, in the Catalan region. And um, he's actually just navigated his way back uh, to NZ now. But, um, yeah, no, so we uh, we speak a little bit of French for him. But, uh, yeah, he, he reckons he was uh, numero uno. So were you, uh, were you playing league or union as a kid? No, I didn't play um, rugby league until pretty much age 23, 24 when I, um, when I played for the Bears. Um, I sort of had a half a game at school. The school I went to was a big rugby union school, Hamilton Boys High School in um, in New Zealand. Um, you know, two thousand students now, um, and and pretty much one of the top sort of half a dozen teams in New Zealand rugby or first fifteen rugby in New Zealand. Um, so it was pretty much uh, rugby through and through. Um, and then um, post school for the next uh, five or six years, as well, um, just. The, the rugby union um, career uh, continued. I played for Waikato, uh, the Chiefs, uh, if they now call it, in the uh, in the Super 15. Um, and I would have had, um, I don't know, maybe 60, 70 games for them. Um, pretty much played for them straight out of school. And it wasn't until I actually missed out on a uh, on an all-black team that uh, I was hoping to make alongside uh, Paul Simonson. Um, and uh, Paul, obviously, is... Uh, Bailey Simonson, who plays for the Raiders now, his dad. Um, I missed out on that uh, squad to go on tour at the end of the year, and um, Steve Martin from the Bears come a knocking, and um, I uh, had a chat to to my dad, and he told me my grandfather would turn in his grave if he knew I was playing rugby league. But um, anyway, the opportunity was in Australia, so within two or three months, I was uh, in an apartment in Camaray. Tell me about your uh, your debut in the NRL. Debut in the NRL, I, I come off the bench. Uh, in 1991, you're allowed two fresh reserves. So most of the uh, reserve grade squad, I guess, played reserves. And then they picked a few guys to, to sit on the bench. Um, I was already selected on the bench, which was reasonably unusual. And we played Canberra, who had won the comp the year before, 1990. Um, and Paul Simonson, um, who I travelled across with, um, he got the start on the wing ahead of me. So Les Kiss and Paul Simonson were on the wings. 
Um, and Les had been really good to us, Les, because he told Paul and I not to go anywhere near the middle of the field um, and particularly stay away from the cricket pitch in North Sydney Oval. Um, so about two minutes into the game, Paul Simonson jumps into dummy half and tries to scoot out of dummy half, and he's good footwork, Paul. Um, and he put some footwork on, but his foot got trapped in the mud, in um, the hard, dry mud at uh, in North Sydney Oval, and he did, a, did an ACL. Um, I come off the... Uh, Fresh reserves bench, um, kick three goals, uh, don't score a try, but we win 10-6 and, and beat the reigning premiers from the year before. And so it was it was awesome. I mean, I I looked across the field and there was Ricky Stewart and Bradley Clyde, Mel Meninga. Um, it was just a host, uh, Glenn Lazarus, the Walters. It was a who's who team, um, that Canberra Raiders outfit. And um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a great start to uh, the rugby league career, even off the bench. I couldn't think of anything worse than making my debut against those fellows. <laughs> oh, they're massive. I, Mario Fennec and that, and that team uh, in the preseason couldn't believe how weak I was. Um, I'd come across from Rugby Union at probably 83 kilos, 80, yeah, no, no more. And I honestly couldn't bench press more than 60 kilos. Um, we just didn't do weights um, outside backs in New Zealand. I mean, some did. Paul did, actually. Paul Simonson did. He was in pretty good shape, but I wasn't. I was just sort of more lean and, and, and got by on my football skills. Um, so I was sort of seen as a little bit of an outcast in the uh, in the North Sydney gym when Peter Jackson and Pat Jarvis and some of the bigger guys were lifting the weights. It was sort of like, why don't you go to the corner and wait till we're finished? You know what I mean? Um, but... Yeah, the fact that I, I managed to nail a couple of goals early on, um, they sort of started to see a different light um, to uh, to what I offered. And um, unfortunately for me, uh, I, I don't miss a game for the rest of the year. Uh, Paul Simonson, who did his knee, comes back midway through the season and actually got to play on the other wing, and then he broke his scaphoid. So for the two Kiwis who came over that year, one had a, had a dream start until the end of the season, and the other one sort of struggled with injury all year. Mate, you, you mentioned the end of that season. Um, it finishes, yeah, let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about it? All right. <laughs> it finishes with a pretty tough day at the office for you. Uh, you know, you, we spoke about, you know, how you, you you finished up your career holding the record for most points scored in B league history. Uh, that afternoon against Penrith, semi-final. Uh, you paint the picture for me, mate. Yeah, well, two from five um, doesn't go down well. Um, Greg Alexander kicked all his goals. If you talk to the the Bears faithful, um, I don't think they've ever really forgiven me as, as much as you know. Like, um, I, I love my time at North, and I, I love the Bears as well. But um, if I kicked a goal, we get beat eighteen sixteen or sixteen eighteen. Um, like I say, Brandy kicks all his goals for Penrith. Um, I would have put North Sydney probably in the first grand final since nineteen twenty two. Um, and I've been reminded. But who's counting, mate? So who's many, counting? I, I, I've been reminded of that so many times. <laughs> and but the history of rugby league was sort of just starting to to dwell on me. I I didn't know any of those details. Um, the Bears were uh, under Steve Martin and and the, the stewardship of David Hill from the ABC were sort of heading in a, a, a new path. And and I sort of you know. I'd only really watched the Winfield Cup on TV for maybe two years before I arrived. Um, sure, I knew some of the players and, you know, the Tina Turner sort of banter was going around and it was fun and it was exciting, but the history of the game sort of really started to dawn on me then. And um, after after a really good start to the year, it was a, it was a pretty hard pill to swallow. I, 
I actually came back to New Zealand um, pretty much quickly after. Uh, not for, I was sort of scheduled to anyway and catch up with family and have a bit of a break. But I remember going straight back into goal kicking and um, I, I grabbed some footies uh, and some Steedens actually because there's not too many Steedens in New Zealand at that time. Um, and I, I kicked all through all through Christmas. Um, I didn't kick Boxing Day. I kicked um, uh, sorry, didn't kick Christmas Day. Kicked Boxing Day. Kicked New Year's Day. And it was in the park at Woody Anger, a little sort of town on the Coromandel, uh, old set of posts and sort of telegraph poles. And I just felt like I had to do something to keep getting it out of my system. So taught me a big lesson. Taught me a big lesson. Probably let a lot of people down that day. Mate, when you look back on that day, do you you know is is there a kick that you remember lining up that you, like you can just remember the head noise on it that it just didn't feel right? Or like was it was it just one of those days? The last kick is uh, about forty out in front, probably not quite that far actually, probably thirty five. So it's a, it's a sitter really, but it's it's just on the edge and it was sort of a go to zone that you as a kicker just don't go. You say to yourself, look, don't miss left, don't miss left. And I was missing left, you know what I mean? Doing exactly what you're telling yourself not to, which is pretty common really in psychology. Um, and so I just I, I purposely lined this one up outside right post. Ball all day and uh, going across the face and then the one I'd sort of allocate a little bit too much for doesn't have any shape on it at all and just drills it straight past. So um, it's fate. It happens. Um, I, I don't mind recalling it sort of now. I, I, I got it out of my head sort of like by the time the preseason had started for, for 1992. And, um, yeah, and, and, and luckily I moved on. And, and by the end of um, finishing playing football, I, you know, I fortunately have um, better stories to tell than that one. <laughs> Mate, of course. And you, um, one thing I didn't realise, you, you mentioned then that you, you made your first grade debut at North when you were 23, yeah? Yep. Fuck, that, that's impressive to finish your career, you know, when you start at 23 in the NRL with the most points. You, you're absolutely blessed. Uh, really lucky um, with injuries for 10 years. So I, I fortunately have 10 years of rugby league. Um, and I basically missed like five games in 10 years. Um, I break my jaw. Um, and miss uh, three games for Canterbury um, one season. Uh, and for North Sydney, I missed two games um, while I was on test duty. Um, so, but mind you, in, in the later part of my year, I, I, I did get a couple of sort of lower leg injuries and Achilles and stuff like that. And um, I didn't like letting up my spot because I had a Hazemil Masri breathing down my neck. And <laughs> I remember playing some games and I thought, maybe I shouldn't play this game. I'm not really, my leg won't sort of like get through it. And then I thought, if I don't play it, Hazem's going to play and that'll be the end of me. <laughs> so, but anyway, I was, uh, like I say, fairly, fairly fortunate to, uh, to not get too many injuries. Mind you, as a, as a winger, you're sort of like uh, not in the middle of it, are you? You're still more in the middle than uh, I ever was, mate. I've got a lot of respect for you. <laughs> tell me, mate, uh, before I move on to your days at Canterbury, tell me about making your debut for New Zealand. Yeah, it was um, Carlo Park, um, uh, and which isn't in operation anymore. Uh, it was the time of the uh, the Iro boys, Brent Todd, uh, you know, Gary Freeman. Um, it was just post the, the Mark Graham era with a Clayton friend, um, Hugh McGarn times. It was a time that um, New Zealand had started having some success uh, against Australia. Um, I don't actually get to win a test match against Australia in, I don't know, about 20 tests, so I, I think I played it all up. Uh, I managed to get a draw, but that was about it. And um, 
And of course, you know, with the likes of um, Daly, you know, Clyde, Meninga, Stewart, Lazarus, Walters, Langer, um, you know, like Australia uh, are the pinnacle. But, um, you know, with the likes of the Iros, Matthew Ridge, uh, Richie Blackmore, Tawata Nikau, um, some of those guys, you know, we not only mix it with them, but... Um, Occasionally, when I'm not playing, they got to win. <laughs> Mate, I think I think for me, when I look back at those New Zealand sides, even the last twenty years, they just find an ability to play so far above their weight, don't they? There was a um, school of thought that um, the Kiwis needed to be in camp for sort of like two or three weeks to um, actually get the best out of themselves. They just enjoyed each other's company that much, you know. And I'm not saying that Australia or England don't enjoy each other's company as well, but Kiwi t- teams seem to do well on tour. You know what I mean? They um, they compete really hard against each other um, for for their own sort of like a place in the squad or at the table or or in the queue wherever. Um, and so when they come together, uh, the bar rises, and um, and that's a great thing about um, you know, representing your country or um, in particular for for New Zealand. Um, and the other sort of component is that we we predominantly play an Australian competition, so you know the and we're smaller. Um, the numbers, so to actually head across the Tasman to the biggest competition in the world and try and uh, try and take their mantle, there's nothing better. Let's fast forward to 1994, mate. Uh, you move over to Canterbury, I think one of the most underrated squads ever. Tell me about that side. That was fantastic. Um, uh, my time at North was up um, and um, change of coach, Peter Louis. In fact, Peter was really good to me, actually. He told me that... Um, he uh, wanted wingers that could scoot out a dummy half, and, and I didn't fit that fold. Jason Taylor had come to Norse and um, had a goal kicker, so sort of that area wasn't required as well. Uh, on the other hand, Canterbury, um, I think they'd been minor premiers in um, in '93, um, and they needed a goal kicker um, for '94 and beyond. So um, good timing. Um, Bullfrog um, was absolutely fantastic. Um, brought into the family um, club. Um, very, very quickly, even though I still lived on the north side. Um, and, yeah, I, I was on tour with the Kiwis, actually, at the end of 93, so I didn't get to Canterbury until late. They'd already actually been on a pre-season trip to, uh, to NZ. Um, and so while I knew the guys, you know, and, and the talent there with uh, Jimmy Dimmick, um, the Smiths, um, Darren and Jason, of course, the great man, Terry Lamb, Paula Mount, uh, uh, Jason Hetherington, Matty Ryan, Jeremy Kraken, um, yeah, it, it was a footy team, um, and fortunately enough, there was a, a spot on the wing for uh, for, for Daryl Halligan, and um, and '94 we, we we go on to be um, minor premiers again. Um, however, we get um, we get trumped by um, a pretty good Canberra side, uh, as I mentioned a lot of their names before. Um, it was a five-team final. Um, we qualify first for the grand final, so therefore get the week off um, in Canberra, um, go through and play the uh, qualifying final, come back in um, Mel Meninga's last game. Um, again, fate uh, was just uh, we weren't good enough on the day. It was a, it was a big pill to swallow because um, Canterbury had, um, I think they bowed out 93 in the finals um, in, the, in two games straight out after being minor premiers and then 94 to get to the grand final and not win it. Um, yeah, it was, um, it was a bit of soul-searching to be done there, actually. Um, and why, you know, because as you mentioned, the, there was enough talent in the team, um, and so we we leave that day, grand final day, ninety four, you know, richer for the experience. But um, knowing that there's 
I guess, unfinished business. The last seconds are ticking away. Canterbury Banks down. The Sydney Bulldogs have won it in Terry Lamb's final appearance. 328 magnificent first grade games. The journey started there, and uh, a year later, you returned to grand final day and... You know, I, I think, you know, the grand final was impressive, but your run to the grand final was just beyond belief. Ch- explain to me what happened that season. We uh, we start 95 pretty well, um, get our fair share of wins, but I guess Chris Anderson's not really happy with um, the performance of of the guys in the team. I remember get, getting pulled aside at one stage, and um, Canterbury always played a um, an up and in defence, and um, at North we played a slide, and... Um, at one stage of 95, Chris pulls me aside and he said, listen, he said, um, I know you get short on numbers sometimes as a winger and you have to make a decision. He said, but if you don't come up and take someone out, he said, um, then you're going to go back to reserve grade. And I was sort of looking at him and he goes, but I'm going to give you a month. And, and, and in essence, it was Chris's coaching to a T, you know what I mean? He's, he said, I'll back you to make the right decision. He said, but our style is up and in and take someone out. And I said, okay. So from there on in, I, uh, it just basically said to me, don't worry about what's on the outside. Stop the ball as it comes along the line and go in and get stuck in, you know what I mean? And from there on and I think I defensively um, had a better handle on the game as well. So we're in the middle of the season and um, we're Parramatta on a Friday night and Parramatta travelling near the bottom of the table. We're sort of only around the middle where we should be at the top or the top two or three anyway. Manly's probably the um, the team that's tracking well all year. They only lose two games. Um, and we get beat by um, Para 40 nil, 40 to something, 40 to whatever. Anyway, the changing shit afterwards um, wasn't the greatest place to be for the first half hour, but then for the second half an hour, it was fantastic. So what happened in the first half an hour, everyone had their heads down, and then finally everyone got into the um, shed after whatever commitments outside. And um, Bullfrog come in and he said, righto, he said... Uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, be down at Dremoyne Wharf. We're going on a boat cruise. No excuses. And anyway, the next morning, we're down on this boat cruise and floating around the harbour, playing cards, drinking with music, guitars, the whole bit. And then sort of we all come off the off the back of the harbour cruise, sort of pretty weary in the afternoon, into the evening, and then get home. And I, I think from that spot on, um, we don't actually lose a game, or we might lose one maybe to Brisbane or something um, towards the back end of the year. But we basically don't lose a game. Um, so he just saw the need for the guys to chill out and relax and along with Chris and decided that um, the Harbour Cruise was going to be the catalyst for it. And, um, I mean, there was there was other things, I guess, the learnings from the year before and the finals and grand final in particular about relaxing and all that sort of stuff. But that was the catalyst of the, of the team. And, and a lot of the guys in that team will tell you and they'll remember that Harbour Cruise. Daryl, could you imagine now... If a team gets dusted 40 nil on Friday night and then the coach puts them in for a floating <laughs> piss up on Saturday, fuck, could you imagine? Yeah. You'd get the sack, wouldn't you? Oh, my and the God. Bar, you'd, all, you'd get the sack for going, you know. RLPA would want to know about it. You the know Brisbane I mean? boys couldn't on? sit on a pokey last year. Imagine you guys. <laughs> fuck. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the times change um, and what have you, so... It um yeah it, it is what it is and it was what it was and and, and that was was it uh, you can you do that now no you can't um so you'll have to you have to find other ways to uh, to, to to enjoy you know and and the guys know that so and 
and, and of course, it wouldn't be a good sight, you know, like if all of a sudden, like you say, you've beaten Friday night 40 to zip and then all of a sudden everyone's out yahooing and partying, partying on a, a boat in the afternoon on Saturday, they'll just go, these guys don't sort of care about the game or something. But it was just someone had sensed that there was some stress and emotions that needed to be, and a few home truths needed to be told in a different light. And in that particular manner, it worked. Unbelievable, mate. That um that grand final, as you said, you come up against Manly. They'd only lost two games all year. Uh, tell me about that day. We go into uh, that grand final full of confidence, and um, off the back of beating Manly at Belmore on a, on a really late in the season. Like I said, I think Manly only got beat twice in the regular season, um, and one of them was at Belmore when when we went over top of them, not by much. Um, uh, and so you're looking at, um, you know, Spud Carroll, uh, uh, Ian Roberts, Matty Ridge, Cliffy Lyons, Jeff Toovey, Des Hasler, um, Terry Hill, John Hopawati. Um, they are, and, you know, Bob Fulton coaching, they would have, I don't know, maybe out of the 13 starting would be 11 internationals. Um, but, but like, our, our talent wasn't any less um, on the day when you look at our team as well. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was the last Winfield Cup. Um, we learn our learn from our lessons um, in '94. Um, preparation was fantastic, but pre- preparation was fantastic because the guys knew what was coming. Uh, we knew um, what Manly would throw at us in terms of you know the game that they wanted to play. Um, uh, they're a slow uh, team that want to grind you down, and but then they'll just turn around and, and make something out of nothing when they've got the playmakers similar to you know, Cliffy Lyons and the likes of Jeff Toovey, you know, and then they had class at the back with, with Ridgie and Pace and plenty of mongrel up front. So um, We actually score um, one try off a seventh tackle um, and one which you could probably say was a blatant forward pass, but um, anyway, that's, that, that, that's fate as well. Um, but yeah, we... Um, we we actually win eighteen two or eighteen six or something like that. I can't actually remember the score, but I remember the last ten minutes being the probably the the best ten minutes I've actually ever experienced on the football field because it sort of had a realization that um, after not really knowing what the Winfield Cup was or the NRL Premiership as a rugby union player, and you know five years into it, here we go. I'm gonna hold it up. So it was pretty cool. Unprecedented, mate. In that team, I think you had two of my favourite players to ever play footy. Uh, one of them is your Clive Churchill medalist that day, Jimmy Dimmick. Tell me about him. Jim Dandy. Um, I love the way uh, Jimmy, he's got a real character about him and, and a charisma. And, and it shows in his football best, I reckon. Um, he can speak and, 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 and he's a good coach now. Um, but he was just enthusiastic and, and alive on the football field. He, um, he'd run over top of you if he wanted to. Um, he had really good hip strength. He'd bounce in front of you and put some footwork on, um, and then he'd engage you with his eyes and offload to Jason Smith or someone beside him. Um, he, he was pretty much the complete footballer in terms of a lock forward. Uh, I mean, you know, some will say that Brad Clyde was the best you know, lock forward of that era, and there's been many of them. But in terms of um, just skill with the football and footy nous, um, he was like a um, had the physicality of of everything, but could play touch football um, with anyone. And and you needed to be alive when you played with him because 
it'll come out of anywhere and it would come early, it would come late and it'll come right to wherever you wanted because he, he just had that sort of nous with the football in hand. Um, love the way he sort of bounced in front of players and spun and twisted and, you know, and like I say, then when he wanted to, he'd just run, put the ball under his arm and run straight off top of someone and then offload on the way down. So, yeah, he was, um, wish I had a skill. <laughs> Fuck, don't we all, mate? I, 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 I look I didn't back. Drop some of his passes as well. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. I look back at him and think, fuck, he's just one of the best raw footballers I've ever seen. There's yeah. another bloke in your team who quite possibly is the best raw footballer I've ever seen. Tell me about Terry Lamb. He was great, Terry. Um, I mean, he was at the at the back end of his um, career then, and you know all the stories about him not training too much with some you know no ligaments in his knees and all that sort of stuff or cartilage or whatever it was. But um, he got himself around the park, no problem at all. He'd been doing it for years. Um, I loved his character. I love the the dryness of Terry, um, which had been, in, I, I guess, ingrained into him through uh, the 80s football. Um, and he, here's a guy who can, can not a big guy, who can uh, cut it in the 80s with that brutal style of football when, when you go back and have a look at that sort of stuff. And then um, keep up with the skill levels in, in, in the 90s, you know. he um, and, and, and things like, you know, everyone will say, oh, he, he used to put someone in a hole, then um, back up, get the pass, but give the pass to the winger quickly, then back up on the inside and score on the inside himself, you know. <laughs> he was because he's not going to run the whole distance himself anymore. But it's just clever, you know what I mean? It's People can find ways to, to keep up with the pace of a game. Um, and, and he not only found the way to keep up with the pace, he... He sort of like invented or delivered a couple of new styles to, to sort of um, keep everyone else on their toes. Um, and and at the, at actually heart of the game was was the physicality and ruggedness that uh, of not taking a backward step to anyone that Terry Lamb sort of uh, embellishes. Mate, I um I did a little segment on him on my page a few weeks ago, and just just looking back at his career, like he he won that grand final with you guys in '95. He scored the most tries out of anyone in the 1980s, and five years later, he's still winning grand finals. Fuck, he he is a freak, and he's a he's, five eight. Um, he's not a winger. He's he, he's not standing out there waiting for the ball. Is that and exactly? Um, he the ball would navigate its way to him wherever he was on the football field. Um, and I guess you know, like he uh, he demanded that and, and and deserved it because he he was that player. You know what I mean? And he. He wasn't um, calling the football because there was a, a gaping big hole there for himself. He was calling the football because there was a hole there for someone else outside him. And then he was good enough to give it to that guy, and that guy would go through the hole, and then he'd back up on the inside. So um, he, yeah, and I mean, he, he's one of your true fullers that you could say that I'm so blessed as a team member to have actually played with someone of, of that calibre and that character. Very selfless, um, 
happy for everyone else to go first, but always stand up for what is right and you know what's what's what what he needs as well. Um, yes, and, and and he's a gentleman and and he's a, and he's a joker and and yeah, he's just good character. Mate, were you playing with him the day he uh, he threw the field goal over? No apparent no, reason. No, that was that, that that was before me. That was before um, you. So that, that, that was before '94. Yeah, um, right. So yeah, I would have liked to have been. I could have given them a bit of <laughs> bit of a raz. <laughs> would have been sensational, mate. Let's fast forward to uh, 1998 preliminary final versus the Eels, and I sort of, especially over the last few weeks, when you know Fox, Fox Sports is putting on their best games ever constantly. I, I think this one is one that flies under the radar. Uh, you guys are down 18-2 with 10 minutes to go. Preliminary final against the Eels. Tell me what happens in the next 10 minutes. Para had been um, building up under Brian Smith for a few years. Um, and, of course, off the back of Super League, they actually had a few Canterbury players, um, including we talked about Jimmy Dimmick before, Dean Pay, Jason Smith, um, and Jeremy McCracken um, were, had all headed that one in Super League. So there was sort of like a little bit of um, spice in the game, uh, Canterbury and Parrot winners, you're never not, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, yeah, we're late in the game, we're down. We'd had a great um, comeback the week before against Newcastle, um, and that was, and Newcastle were up with Parramatta, were probably the best two teams that year. Um, uh, of course, Brisbane win it, so throw them in. But um, yeah, and uh, we, we came down from, uh, come back from nearly 12 points against. Um, the Newcastle Knights the week before. And then, you know, it just, we sort of had belief that in the last, if we had the football in the last 10 minutes of the match, that we could win it. And, and we didn't have too many problems scoring points. So we had a really young side, you know, Brent Sherwin was uh, the half and David Thompson was a young front rower off the bench. And there wasn't really a lot of names, you know, Shane Martini um, played in the centres. John Timu, um, who'd come across from Rugby Union, was an All Black and played with us. Um, so it was, it was a team with Stephen Folks in his first year still still finding their feet. But um, we we only really found our football in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the game. Um, and, and, you know, as history goes down, um, there's a kick to be kicked uh, to level the game up at 18, uh, 18 all. Uh, and one D. Halligan sort of gets his chance to um, nail one that possibly eluded him in his first year in 91. Um, and fortunately enough, um, she goes over. In fact, Willie Talao scores a try. He should, have, he should have passed it to me. I should have scored it in the corner. He cut me off, actually. <laughs> Mate, um, run me through your mindset when you're lining up that kick in that pressure situation. You know, it's a moment that every kid sort of dreams of and only a select few get to live it. Yeah, I'd kicked a couple the day before. I'd always go to the ground the day before. So I went to the football stadium the day before that game and kicked some goals. And the day before, I was sort of like curving them from left to right, um, which is not unusual. So you try and allocate for that and send it out a little bit right. Um, And uh, I'd missed one to the left from there two kicks before. Um, which was a bit of a no-no. So uh, I could have actually won the game then if I had a clean clean sheet. But um, So I was just, once again, don't go left, don't go left, which is sort of bad psychology because you will go left. So I sort of aimed up towards the right pole um, and kicked it. And I thought, oh, no, I've got that skinny, which in my mind is actually it's heading a little bit left. 
and it did start to turn a little bit left and then it sort of found a little bit of shape and, and, and bent its way back to sort of sliding inside or it was in the end I guess it was a foot inside left post so might have gone over anyway but um, yeah I, I feel like you know I'd kick that kick a thousand times in my head I'd actually kicked it at least a thousand times at training um, so you know it, it was deserved in a way but you still have to be fortunate for it to happen on the day. Tell me, mate, you spoke about him briefly earlier, um, a young Hazem El-Mazari. He's, uh, he's coming along sort of as your career is starting to wind up at Canterbury. Uh, tell me about a young Hazem. Hazem was great. Um, re- not only kept me on my toes, but um, made me work to, to stay in the team. Um, he's a, a talented runner, a try scorer, gets a footwork good under the high ball, you know, um, and on top of that, he kicks goals. So he's a real threat. Um, and I, I guess in the last two years of... My football, 99 and 2000, um, hasn't probably, I probably denied him the opportunity to kick a few more goals, actually, um, which is, you know, not nice. But um, he um, he was awesome. Um, he was a breath of fresh air at the time. His nature was a real, you know, something the game could embrace and, 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 and bring along as well. Um, played a lot of soccer as a youngster as well as, as football. A really good athlete and, and, and a good um Good character too has you know what I mean. He was um, always smiling, always happy to work. You know, end up um, kicking a lot of sessions together. Um, I sort of can't really remember too many competitions along the way that we had then, um, but I, I dare say there would have been a couple in there. But um, he probably would have nailed me actually. Before I probably can't remember them. But um, uh, yeah, no, I, I've only got admiration for Hazem El Masri, and, and and as you should with um, with what he achieved. Is there a moment that you look back on that you remember when you first saw Hazem kick and sort of thought, fuck, like this kid's the real deal? <laughs> no, he was the real deal anyway coming through the grades. We, we sort of... And, and, and Hazem had enough confidence in himself to know that he was as well, um, and which is a great thing to carry. And, you know, I, I was just, you know, basically the care, caretaker of his job for a little while. Um, and he was always going to kick, you know... Canterbury, luckily for for nearly twenty years, um, basically have the two two of the top goal kickers. You know, you can put throw Ivan Cleary and Ridge and a couple of others and Taylor in there as well. But they basically don't have anyone else kick goals for them outside of El Masri and Halligan for, for nearly twenty years. Um, the next bloke to step in, you know, he must have been actually shaking in his boots. But um, so yeah, he um, no, he was he was always going to make it as him. Well, mate, you spoke about. Like um, yourself and hasn't been the only two to kick goals. Like there was a period there where Canterbury also had Thurston in the ranks, and he'd go on to be the third highest yeah. point scorer ever. So you had you had three <laughs> of the top six ever in the squad within three years. A fucking unbelievable. I remember um, JT kicking. Um, he in his last year at Canterbury, he actually ended up playing. Oh, sorry, not his last year at Canterbury. My last year at Canterbury. He played in a reserve grade game um, right at the end of the year. It must have been a reserve grade grand final or something like that and as a teenager and kicked goals from everywhere. Um, so while I didn't get to know um, JT too much, while uh, our times at Canterbury didn't really sort of cross over too much. But, um, yeah, if you, if you put the three of that together, then you can actually basically put goal kicking down for 30 years. Unbelievable, mate. Um, so Makes you me think- feel old. <laughs> Sorry, my bad. <laughs> you um, mate, you, you finished with I believe two thousand three, uh, two thousand and thirty four points. Which at the time when you retired, that was the most ever scored in the NRL. That must have been an amazing feeling. 
Yeah, it was. Um, uh, again, it's, you know, I, I don't play rugby league until I'm 23, 24, so it's not exactly on the radar um, early on and where I'm thinking, you know, what I'm going to play. Um, so by the end of it, um, there was a couple of records to be broken. I can remember them. Um, and I, I'd go back and have a look and try and find out about the likes of McCronin and how, how good they were, you know. And, of course, they used a different style with a more like the straight up and down kicking as against round the corner. And then, fortunately, you get to meet these guys and, and, and find out a little bit about their story, you know what I mean? So it, it was special for sure. Um, but it, it wasn't an intention uh, in a way to go out and become, you know, at the time the highest point scorer um, in, in the game's history. So it's been beaten. You know, there was plenty of guys sort of coming close um, and getting close along the way as well with Jason Taylor and, um, of course, Cameron Smith and a few of those guys now. Um, and others have gone past, but yeah, no, that was um, yeah, that was a special moment, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll treasure that. Considering Cameron Smith, he's on he's on two thousand six hundred odd. Considering he's probably going to play for another eight fucking years, he could be on three thousand. <laughs> do you do you see anyone ever breaking his record? Jared Croak has a chance. I mean, yep. Croak started really early at um, Canberra and has been tracking along nicely. Most goal kickers in the teams that are near the top of the comp will. will score 200 points a year. So, um, score 200 points a year, you just quickly do your maths. If you're, if you're going to play 20 years, um, then, you know, you're going to get close to 4,000. If you play 15 years, you're going to get 3,000. So, um, Cameron Smith, um, you know, like uh, from here on in, depending where he gets to, um, will be, be interesting to watch. Um, but, yeah, so the, the only one I really think that I could see catching him would be um, Jared Croker, and and maybe uh, you know if Nathan Cleary has a um, an injury free career and goes on to become a Terry Lamb or something like that, and still sort of dabbles in goal kicking, then um, you know someone as young as that could could do some damage as well. Well, Croker, he, he's 29 years old with 2,000 points, which is incredible. And like when you compare that to what Smith's going to do, it it blows your mind that these two blokes are around, doesn't it? Well, he has to play, you know, five five more years after this one, um, which he can do. Thirty five for you know, football is not unheard of anymore. Um, which would basically injury free would get um, Jared Croker closer to three thousand. So it's not a lay down Mazir that um, Smithy will you know never ever be overtaken. Um, but it'll take a pretty special effort from someone. And the and the key to it is um is injury. You know, if you're constantly racking up ten points a game over a you know twenty plus. <clears throat> Um, game season, then you'll get your 200. Some seasons you'll get 250 plus. Um, so injury free is the key. You retired with that record and it's been broken since. But one thing that you know you will always have your place in history for was the revolutionary plastic tee. Tell me about that. Yeah, we originally kicked off um, sawdust or sand sawdust at North Sydney Oval because um, uh, Peter the ground. Um, groundsman there wouldn't let us use sand on the cricket pitch so he had to use sawdust but um and i guess it just become easier to instead of taking the bucket of of dirt out there and making a mound um and then kicking it over once you're finished or removing the sand from the pitch and i mean the groundsman would hate it now if you actually took a bucket of sand out there and made a mound with the way they uh, manicure the uh, the grounds but it was just inevitable that tees were going to come in. I didn't actually um, agree with them in the first uh, sort of year or so. I was kicking reasonably well off um, off the sawdust and the sand, and just thought it was you know quite a nice mix. But um, there was a cousin of mine who uh, came up with a, a design and a shape to start with, and he said, "Would you try this?" And I said, "I'll try it, but I'm not going to give you any guarantee I'm going to use it." You know what I mean? 
And then I, I just realised that, hey, I, um, it's actually a lot easier and I'm not smacking into the ground all the time and I'm not going to get my bucket and it's actually more convenient. So I ended up using it and I didn't even tell him actually. And um, anyway, I got a call a couple of weeks later and he was over the moon. So it sort of started from there. And now, um, you know, with the kickoffs and different kicks that guys come up with, it's, um, it's probably a little bit easier to to actually position a, a football on a tee now um, and then change and adapt if you have to, as again, sort of sticking your hand into uh, a mould of sand or some wet sawdust or even some dirt, depending what sort of composition it is, you know what I mean, to, to get the ball sitting in the right spot. So it's just um, become a lot easier. I know, um, I know I'm really showing my age here now because a lot of the younger ones wouldn't even know what it was, you know, to be able to kick off that. But some people reckon they used to kick out of a shoe so, um, but yeah, so that's kicking tees, and um, and I've been sort of at the forefront uh, in, in a way of trying to come up with some new ones to um, to excite the guys to, to sort of create some different kicks and that as well. So we um, we're still involved with that business, which is good. What was the uh, what was the general reaction when you first whipped out the uh, plastic tee? Um, I think it goes if you if you're kicking well with it, it's like wow, let's get one of those and. And timing's sort of quite important to that. So if I hadn't kicked well with it, then people would have gone, oh, toss it in the bin and never see it again. Um, but my first season in, um, in the rugby league, I, I kicked at 67%. Um, now, if you go back, and, and that was actually considered reasonably well. Um, so by the end of it, by 10 years on, you're kicking sort of 80% as an average. Um, you know, some guys kick closer to 90% a season and, uh, you know, get 88s, 89s and what have you. So the the skill of goal kicking really, really improved, um, uh, along with, you know, some more practice and, and different routines that guys would use and, and the game being a little bit more professional as, as well. So um, it was just a cycle where kicking tees were involved in that progression of, of what was coming. Mate, tell me about when you were playing, what was your goal-kicking routine when you were at practice? Because I, you know, like with, with my footy team that I coach today, you know, I've I've got my goal-kicker and the three or four others that, that can throw them over. And, you know, they arrive at the park, they go straight to the sideline, they kick for t- two from ten, and it's just, it's all over the place. Like, I always think, you know, there should be some structure to a goal-kicking session. What did you used to do? Yeah, well, 91, I had that same session that you just sort of pointed out there. I'd have a couple from the sideline. Um, and it wasn't until 92 or the preseason of 91 that I nailed exactly what I wanted to do. Had a really good mentor, um, not that he we spoke, but a, a visual mentor as a goal kicker and a guy called Grant Fox out of New Zealand who was an all-black number 10 who kicked goals for Auckland um, and played a lot of rugby against... Um, and I'd watch him train sometimes because I was living with um, my cousins who were a couple of all-black second rowers at the time when I spent some time in Auckland. I'd go to training, and he'd always practice afterwards, and I watched him, and he'd stay close to the post. So I sort of had a bit of a thought that year that I'll change around what I was doing because 91 didn't work, really, at 67%. Um, and so then 92, I came back, and I'd, I'd just have four from in front. Um, then I'd go to the right side, maybe 10 metres to the right side of the post, about 20 metres out, and have, well, I'd have six actually, six from there. Then I'd have six from, say, 10 metres in from touch on that right-hand side. And then I'd go and repeat on the, on the left-hand side, have um, two lots of six. And then I'd thought, oh, to finish off with, I'll have you know 35 out in front. I'll have six from there. So if you count those spots up, you've got six spots with six kicks. So my routine became a 36-kick routine. And then... 
the day before the game, I'd, I'd visit both ends of the field with that routine. So I'd do 70 um, the day before a game, and then two times a week I'd just do the 36 at one end. So if you tally that up, you get close to about 4,000 kicks a year early on. And so if you weren't kicking well, you'd be a bloody muppet, wouldn't you, really, if you're doing that much truck? <laughs> you'd um, want to be handy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're putting goal kicker on your tax return. Yeah, and so I sort of broke that down. I kept that for the last nine years I played, and I, I broke it down. Sometimes I wouldn't get as many sessions in a week um, at the end, but I always tried to get an early one, and I'd always do the day before the game, and if I got a third one in there, um, I'd get there. But I just broke it down to four kicks from each spot as well, um, just to lessen the numbers after I'd sort of feel like I'd, I'd got enough numbers in the bank. So my maintenance numbers were um, 24 kicks um, a session and a minimum of two, um, if not three. So that was pretty much how I went about it. And I, I guess the focus was take the pressure off the ones from the sideline because you generally have a bit of fun with those and kick those anyway um, and make sure you nail what you're supposed to nail, hence sort of a little bit closer to the post. But the, the next big tool I'd... Um, I sort of managed to cotton on to, and it was just through being on the park one day after nailing a few kicks, is I'd actually watch the shape of the kick as it's gone past the post. So I'd actually know what I was, what sort of shape I was producing. So I wasn't just kicking blind. I wasn't kicking it, seeing it go through the post, and then going, oh, yeah, next. I'd continue to watch it and know that, you know, what sort of movement came late. So... If I had to kick one from touch, I would often think to myself, okay, have a bit of fun with this one, and you might want to move it a little bit more than what you, you think, depending where the wind is or, or what have you. Um, and, and the balls, you know, you, you've got a bit of an idea of what sort of shape you kick with. Can I ask you, mate, was your approach like if you were kicking from in front, would it be the exact same strike as if you were kicking it from the sideline, the same power, or did you sort of change it up depending on where you were? Rugby league players only need to kick about 42 metres from, depending on the width of the field, from the 20 metre line to the goalpost, about 42. Um, so it was never, ever a big kick. Um, and, and you're right, I, I didn't actually put any more effort into a kick from um, out wide than, you know, one from actually on touch. Of course, if it's right in front of the post, you generally don't kick it as hard as what you normally kick it, but... In essence, yeah, I tried to sort of mimic every kick was the same and carried the same weight, um, and you, it was just supposed that we're in a different position on the field. Union's different because you, you're kicking long goals and you know, you're asked to kick goals from over 50, but um, in, um, in rugby league, we're never really asked to kick a goal from outside of 45 metres, so that philosophy works for rugby league. I think it's the biggest mistake that I see in the kids in my team now is they get to the sideline and everything just goes out the window. They just try and kick the shit out of it as hard as they possibly can and it just looks like a nightmare. Um, yeah, children, um, in terms of kicking, it's, I, I love seeing them out and about and, and they, you know, they feel, some feel like they have to give it a real whack to get it, to get it there. Um, and once their, their body develops and um, they get a little bit more muscle and it comes down to timing, you know, it's sort of like not really an effort job. It's more a, a timing job. I always, if I'm working with guys and having a kick with them, ask them to kick at 85%, never ask them to flog it at 100 um, You should never break anything kicking a goal um, in terms of whacking it that hard. So it's more a timing issue than an actual power issue. Um, you could argue into a, into a big breeze one day, but... Hey, work that out on, on the day that does come with a big breeze. Don't try and work that out if it's, if it's not there. Mate, when I look at your goal-kicking uh, career stats, you know, you finished your career with uh, an 80% success rate. 
if I look at the last three years of your career, you finished with 87, 85, and 87%. Do you put that down to, you know, were you just at your peak then? Was it the new balls that were coming in? Was it the T? Is there anything you could put that down to? I was scoring closer to the post. (laughs) No, Um, no, I think, uh, you know, if you don't get better as a goal kicker um, after 10 years in in the game or more, then, wow, you know what I mean? Um, You you become mentally sort of strong. You have a a set routine. You know what works. Um, I'd expect goal kickers to to kick better in the later part of their careers than the first. You know, the first couple of years can be quite daunting. You know what I mean? You don't have enough numbers in the bank. You haven't seen yourself um, kick a couple of goals that you want to um, instead of, you know, um, embracing a a goal kick to win the match. You you might fear it, you know. Um, You you sort of think, I want that kick, you know what I mean? Um, But you don't feel like that straight up until you've probably nailed a couple of clutch goals in games. Um, so, yeah, I think all those things add to, you know, part of, of your makeup in your career. So, yeah, definitely, the, I believe goal kickers at the end of the career, their career should be kicking better than what they do at the start, outside of an injury or something, I suppose. Mate, let's say a uh, hypothetical situation here. You get yourself and four other goal kickers to, t- to play a game of horse with goal kicking. Who would be your four that you would pick from all time, the four best goal kickers that you'd take on? Well, I started with mentioning my brother, but I'm not going to give him a run. So no, brush um, him. Not a chance. <laughs> um, as a, I've always really enjoyed um, and thought technically Matthew Ridge was a particularly good goal kicker and skillful athlete. Um, so Ridgie can come to the party. Um, got a big rap on, um, obviously, Nathan Cleary. Um, he's there. Hasm is, is definitely in amongst uh, the mob as well. And actually, uh, Nathan Cleary's father, Ivan, um, has got really, really good stats as well as kicked a lot of clutch goals with his time, you know, at the Roosters and and, and the Bears when when he's behind Jason Taylor and Manly as well. So I'll throw two Clearys in there as well. So you've got Matthew Ridge, Nathan Cleary, Hazem and Ivan Cleary, yeah? That's it. Mate, all-star party. Last question. (laughs) Last question before I let you go. You've got someone to kick a goal from the sideline to save your life. Who's kicking it? I am. You are? Then I can die on it. <laughs> okay. I'm taking you out of it. <laughs> if you had to pick someone else, who kicks it for you? Who's the one man that you would trust in that clutch moment to kick it? I would go with Hasm. Hasm? Have to. Canterbury. Blood. He's got to remember a little bit of me from then. <laughs> Back him in. <laughs> mate uh it's been an absolute pleasure having you on um you know congratulations on everything you achieved in your career and posted i see you're into uh, a bit of commentary now yeah we're doing some commentary for sky tv over the last few years which has been good still involved in the game and um and very lucky so it's, it's been great and mate if uh, if people are trying to get their hands on your kicking tea where can they go to yeah, the Super Tea, um, available at most of the places of Rebel and all your um, good sports stores in and around the country. Uh, Rebel Sports will um, have a whole shelf of them. Um, they're the green ones. We call them the green machines. Um, we bought out a couple of sort of like um, Tiffany blue colour ones for the girls last year. So the likes of Curadib and, and that also um, use the product, which is fantastic. So you'll see a couple there as well. Legend, mate. Thank you for your time. Very much appreciated. Congratulations on everything. Cheers. It was fun. Good man. See you, brother. See you soon.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.